Turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. Um, Rhonda sent me a text that said, you know, asked about singing that song. I actually thought it was a different song. I don't know that I've heard that song before. And uh, there's a particular line that I love the song. There's a particular sign, a, a, a line that really jumped out at me. And I can't say it, but it's because I didn't write the whole line. But it says something about, you had my heart in your sights. You had my heart in your sights. And I was thinking about that because in Revelation chapter 13, where we're going to be looking at tonight, I'm not going to deal with verse 8 a lot um, tonight, and I was feeling a little bit bad about that, so I'll go ahead and deal with it because it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, God's had your heart in his sights from the foundation of the world. And before you ever sinned, in the mind of God, Jesus was already crucified Already your sins are already atoned for, already paid for. Um, God wasn't sitting around when after Adam and Eve sinned wondering, oh, no, what do I do with them now? <laughs> As parents, we can relate to that. Sometimes we say, oh, no, what do we do with them now? But um, God never, never has that issue. God, and so just a word of encouragement tonight that God's had your heart in his sights from eternity past before you ever had a thought about him. And that should give us something to praise God for tonight. So Revelation chapter 13, deal with most of the chapter tonight. Look at verse 10. I think that's sort of the, the theme of Revelation chapter 13. So we'll start off there and uh, just kind of wander through the passage and see what God has for us this evening. Uh, the Bible says, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Well, we all go through hard times, don't we? Go through hard days, some days harder than others. I read about a lady that uh, was working for a particular company, and they had a meeting to meet with some clients in another part of town. Some, several folks from her office was going to this particular building to meet with these other clients. And so uh, they went, and she got direct. But she really didn't pay attention to the directions. They had to go to the top floor of this other building that they had not been to before. She didn't pay very close attention, and uh, she wasn't real good with directions. She got separated from her group. And so she's on the top floor of this building. She's a little bit confused about where she should be going. She's wandering around, uh, opens the door and walks out onto the roof. <laughs> it was a fire door shut behind her and locked, and she's out on the roof with no way to get back in. And so she's kind of wandering around on the roof, and she turns a corner, and she can see down into a window, and uh, there's her friends. <laughs> there's the clients and her workmates all down there uh, in the meeting room looking up at her. That's when it's really embarrassing, right, when they look at the, hey... <laughs> <laughs> hey, how'd you get up there? Actually, it was an accident. They managed to open the window and sort of let her back in. But that, yeah, that's kind of a bad day, right? Well, tonight we're going to talk about in Revelation, what we've been talking about is some of the most horrific days that the planet Earth will ever deal with. Uh, we've been seeing those seven seals. We walked through all of that, the blowing of the seven trumpets. We saw that. Seven trumpet is blown. We won't really get to it for another chapter or two. We've been kind of getting the behind-the-scenes story, the spiritual warfare kind of story, what's going on behind the scenes. And that's really still where we're, we're at in Revelation chapter 13. As we uh, dig into this, we see, and we have seen, just some awful stuff, right? Now, a third of the grass being burned up. you got all these... Um, Demon-like creatures probably actually are demons being turned loose on the earth, people being killed, meteors or something like that falling from the sky. 
And as we approach this tonight, I think it's a good reminder as we look into some of these things that Revelation does require a good dose of humility as you walk through it because there are some things that are just really hard to say. This is exactly what this represents. Uh, at the same time, we know what the message is. And I think that's one of the challenges of Revelation is to know when to say, boy, that's really hard. I'm not exactly sure uh, what that's talking about. And this is the message that we can be adamant about and we know that the Revelation is talking about. Give you an illustration, and this comes from last time. We didn't quite get through all of Revelation chapter 12. But in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, who was, we think is Israel, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given, watch this now, the two wings of a great eagle. This is one of those places where it's hard to be adamant about, and people have had all kinds of interpretations about the two wings of a great eagle. That she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and swept her away uh, with the torrent. Uh, the two wings of an eagle, that, that's one of those things there's been all manner of interpretations about what the two wings of, of an eagle. One of the um, more popular ones in recent years have been that it suggests an airlift operation by the United States because it's called the two wings of an eagle. Uh, if that's true, we can be grateful that Benjamin Franklin did not get his way when he suggested the turkey be the national bird uh, for the United States. I really do think that's stretching it an awful lot. Now, could it be that? Absolutely, it could be that. God can do it any way he wants to. But when we start, especially when you start making the United States the center uh, or the or key issue in Revelation, when it's really centered in the Middle East, it kind of shows us a little bit about how egocentric we can be to think we're part of what's going on here. Uh, so much of Revelation is grounded in Exodus. Uh, waters turn into blood and things like that. So there's a lot of allusions to Exodus. And so when you look at what is God talking about, I think what John would have been thinking about, I think what the people that he wrote to would have been thinking about would have probably been Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So what do we not know? What we don't know and can't be adamant about is what he's actually talking about, how he will do that. What we do know is God will do it. We don't know who God will use, what country he'll use, what kind of manifestation. Is it going to be supernatural? But we need to make sure we stay grounded in Scripture and not conjecture. And so it's fun to talk about, right? It's fun to talk about. Uh, it's not something you need to get mad or frustrated or anything like that with. Now, what we do see here, what we want to center in on tonight, is that it does seem like the whole world's coming apart at the seams here. I mean, it seems like the fabric of the universe is being torn apart. And these people, now, the people in John's day are living through horrific times. John's talking about probably in the future, what most of us would believe would be the seven-year tribulation, that some people are going to live through some horrific times then as well. So John's going to help us tonight see how to deal with really hard times in your life. This week I was listening to a... A child, it's not really a child, it's a lady who's a, a psychologist, therapist. She deals mostly with people in their 20s is kind of where she specializes in. As I listened to her talk about it, one of the things that hit me was she said that 75% uh, of people in their 20s today have gone through a significant trauma before they got to their 20s. 
And she doesn't mean, you, you know, your seventh grade girlfriend broke up with you. That's not what she's talking about. But here's the things that she listed. I wasn't able to get all of them down because I was out walking, but I got a good many of them down. These are the things she talks about as significant childhood adversities. The loss of a parent through death or divorce. Significant health issue of a parent. Abuse, sexual, physical, or mental abuse. Mental illness in the home. Alcoholism or drug abuse in the home. Abandonment by a parent. Suicide in the home. Now, here's what I just said. 75% of kids that she said, I don't know where she gets her stats from, 75% of people in their 20s have suffered something like that before they get into their mid-20s. That's horrible. And she said 50% have encountered three of those or more because they lead to each other, right? Uh, drug abuse leads to mental illness or, or vice versa, which can lead to suicide, which can lead to abuse. I mean, well, suicide doesn't lead to abuse, but I mean, it can lead to suicide or abuse. And so what we're dealing with is a lot of people who live through a lot of trauma. And our adversities, what God wants us to see with our adversities, a lot of times our adversities uh, cause us or we choose to go away from God. God could have stopped that. And especially you think about a 14, 15-year-old who's either being abandoned by their parent or abused by their parent, got alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, all mental illness in the home, and they're having to deal with this stuff at 14, 15, 16 years old. And that happens right here in Covington County, guys. I mean, that's not something way off out there. Uh, God wants those adversities, while he doesn't cause them, while he doesn't inflict them upon them, Satan wants to use those adversities to say to to a 15-year-old, God doesn't care about you. And God wants to use them for us to share with each other. Our adversities are better than when, we bring, when they bring us together, not to make us to feel abnormal, not to make us to feel abandoned, to make us feel like family, that we can share these things with our Father who cares deeply for us. So with that being, with that being said, I want us to talk about tonight, how do you deal with these horrific adversities? And I'm going to say four things about this tonight for Revelation chapter 13. Now, I'm going to say, first of all, we need a godly awareness. And secondly, uh, we need a godly endurance. Thirdly, we're going to need a godly faithfulness. And fourthly, we need a godly wisdom to deal with horrific kind of situations that most of us are, are going to deal with. Sometimes it's just the result of living in a fallen world. What we're going to see tonight is that a lot of it is because they're Jesus followers, specifically Suffering because you're a follower of Christ. So let's look at it. Let's dig in tonight. First of all, we need a godly awareness of what's going on to be able to see life from God's perspective, okay? Not just to see it from my own, uh, my own self-centered perspective, but to see what is God doing? What's the bigger picture of what's going on here? And look at Revelation chapter 13. We'll look at the first four verses in the New International Version. just seems to read a little easier to me. Look at what it says. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head a blasphemous name. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard. It had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Uh, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? And who can wage war 
against it. Once again, these are some of these things are a little bit hard to say specifically what they are, but we know that the dragon is Satan. God's already identified that. Scripture already identified the dragon as Satan. And the beast uh, is coming up out of the sea. Uh, the sea... Uh, oftentimes was a symbol for evil in Scripture. And so it may, two ideas of this. One is it came up out of the abyss, uh, uh, or it could be coming out of the nations of the world, which probably makes more sense to me that because the beast is probably the Antichrist. This would be somebody, uh, we know that he's an, he's an Antichrist because he comes against God, against God's people, against the, the worship of God and demands worship for him. So he wants people to worship him. And we can see here that he's going to have great power and he's going to use that great power against God's people. Probably a human being dominated by Satan like no other human being has been. Um, I don't know if you want to call it demon-possessed, but he is a uh, ruthless person. He's an evil, probably an evil dictator. Uh, perhaps at the beginning, um, perhaps at the beginning, he's a little bit more uh, cunning. I say a little bit more, a lot more cunning, a lot more persuasive, a little bit more attractive. Now, as I remember, you've got a world that's coming apart at the seams, okay? You've got a world that things are going horribly wrong in. And if you can get somebody to kind of step into a situation where things are really going terrible and say, I can fix it for you, that's the kind of a vacuum that leadership, even evil leadership, can prosper in. Uh, perhaps we met him in chapter 6, probably so. He is there described as riding on a white horse having a bow and a crown, going out to conquer and to conquer. That's probably the first time we hit him here in Revelation chapter 6. Then verse 1, now once again, this is figurative. Don't think of this as, a, in other words, he has ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now don't try to draw a picture and say this is what this guy's going to look like, okay? This is going to be, this is figurative. So we have to think about what are these talking about? The ten horns... Two basic thoughts there on the ten horns. Either a, uh, many people think it's a ten-nation alliance uh, against God and God's people. Uh, others think the ten horns represent all of the godly, all of the ungodly governments of the world. Now, either way, it probably kind of falls out to be the same thing. Uh, that the governments of the world, he's going to somehow control and use those against God's people to bring great persecution, great heartache against God's people. Each head has a, now, each head has a blasphemous name. The word blasphemy means to speak evil against. So it's going to be speaking evil against God, evil against God's people. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be out-and-out out hatred. It can be disguised as tolerance. It can be disguised as wisdom. It can be disguised as uh, common sense, you know. Satan oftentimes uses his blasphemy in a way, uh, and, and, and as an angel of light, in a way that it seems kind of okay to people who don't have the spirit of, of, of God's awareness, who don't see things from God's truth, who don't filter things through God's truth when they look at it. And so this blasphemy is to speak against Jesus, against God, against especially Jewish Christians, but the church uh, in, in all ways. And he says in some respects he's like a leopard, some respects he's like a bear, some respects it's like a lion. Boy, if you try to draw a picture of this dude, it'd be <laughs> something else, wouldn't it? All the heads and lions. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about 
a, a person that is extremely cruel, extremely strong, and extremely fierce. That's what these animals are representative of. And so you're talking about a, a supernatural power, probably more powerful than evil, any evil dictator the world has ever seen, with more power than any evil dictator has ever seen. In fact, one person said he is the ultimate last wicked dictator, the supremely evil human leader who culminates Satan's rebellion as the incarnation of his power. Um, the early church would probably think about, with the people that John's writing to, would probably think about some of the emperors of the Roman Empire who are, who are really um, persecuting them. Uh, they may have thought of Nero. Nero was one of the first Roman emperors to really wage war against the Christians, uh, so much so that he would, um, he would persecute them by lighting their bodies on fire at night to light up his rose garden. I mean, just an awful, awful uh, atrocities there. Um, other emperors came along, did kind of the same thing, made it illegal to be a Christian. You, in fact, there are places uh, in, in, in early history where they just did atrocious things to the early Christians. And so for John's day, for people in John's day, they would see this and say, yeah, we're kind of living that. Yeah, we understand that. And if you would say to them, it's going to get worse later on, they would probably think, I don't know how to get much worse than it is right now. So John is writing to people who's dealing with it. Now, for us in our day, we know things that get a lot worse than they are for us right now, right? But if you talk to somebody whose love of their life is going through horrific disease and about to die, things may be hard. If you go to somebody who's the love of their life has walked out and left them for somebody else, I mean, that, that's really horrific times. And so to have the awareness, what is God doing? What does God say? What is God's perspective on this is really, really helpful. Now, people have, um, have tried to figure out who this guy is, who the Antichrist is, who this beast is, uh, and he's going to set up a statue for him to, to, to worship um, in fact, Nero, uh, he actually um, um, persecuted him as much as anybody ever had at the beginning. And then others came along, and, and, and as we look at this, and they saw what they see, uh, people have often tried to figure out who the Antichrist is. One word of warning. Everybody who's tried to pick out the Antichrist has been wrong. <laughs> okay? Unless you've got one alive today that we haven't proved wrong yet. I've had people ask me, all through my ministry, I've had people ask me, do you think the Antichrist is alive today? And I have a great answer for that. I don't know. <laughs> there's no way for us to know. Uh, there's been some, and this is where you don't want to get too adamant about certain things because you'll end up being proven wrong. People have suggested all kinds of things, anything from, from the Pope uh, from the Roman Catholic Church uh, to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, some have taken, of course, we'll get to 666 in a minute. Uh, some have taken 666 and tried to figure out who the Antichrist is. And that's been some, some weird things. Uh, the name Hitler, if you take the numbers and assign like, like A is 100, and if, if you assign uh, those kind of values, Hitler, uh, the name adds up to 666. Interestingly enough, in English, not in German. <laughs> so you have to work it that way. Uh, also, um, uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan, uh, six letters each, a composite of 666. Uh, William J. Clinton uh, adds up to 666 in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, some people try to call it uh, Bill Gates, a world power through windows. 
And as I said, when you start doing this, you get yourself in some weeds that are really, really difficult to get out of. One of my favorites is somebody came up with the uh, idea that Barney the dinosaur could be the Antichrist. <laughs> so here's the thing. Bar the the uh, cute purple dinosaur, if you take all the letters out except the Roman numerals and take those Roman numerals values, they add up to 666. And so Barney the cute purple dinosaur could actually be the Antichrist. I, that may be true. Right? No, no, <laughs> that's probably not true. So here's what we do know. The Antichrist career can be summarized as blasphemy and hatred toward God, persecution of believers, and deception of the, uh, 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 of the world. Now, it's interesting at the end of this passage of Scripture when it talks about this. By the way, it talks about the, you know, the, ten, the, the ten heads and the seven horns. Um, probably those horns are the leaders of the nations that are allied against God. Uh, why is there seven when there's ten? You, you would think there would be an equal number there. It may be that the Antichrist is ruling three of those on his own. Um, you know, there's just different ways of, um, of working that out. But here's the, here's the thing as we, as we walk toward the, uh, the, the, the end of this point. Verse 4, he says, Who is like him and who can wage war against the beast? King Jesus. That's what Revelation's been telling us, right? The theme of Revelation is that Jesus is the champion. We've hit it several times in the book of Revelation already where we've seen that God has written in the prophetic past tense that Christ has already conquered him. Christ has already subdued him. He's already lost. And so in the prophetic past tense, it means it's already been done. Reminds me of Psalm, uh, is it Psalm 22, I think it is, or Psalm 2, 1, where the Bible says that the, that the nations rage against God and he sits in the heavens and laughs. They think the beast, nobody can conquer the beast. And God's like, yeah, King Jesus will take care of him when his time comes. And it's interesting here that it says that the beast has a wound that has been healed. Uh, boy, a lot of conjecture about that, a lot of um, ideas about that. Um, it's mentioned in verse 3 and verse 14, if you have your Bibles. Uh, some thinks, some really believe that he's killed and somehow raised back to, to, to life. Uh, we do see in Revelation 13 that the beast will have the ability to do miracles. And Jesus told us in, 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 in Matthew 24, don't be deceived by miracles. Evil powers can do miracles. God's not the only one who does miracles. He allows evil powers to do miracles. The demonic can do miracles as well. And so some think that he, uh, that's actually what happens. Some think it's a political defeat or a military defeat that he comes back from. Some think that maybe it's a particular country that he controls that comes back from a military defeat. Uh, some think it's just an almost, fa almost fatal wound that he revives from. It's not hard for us in our day. It's not hard for us in our day to imagine. Uh, somebody, and as I said, this is just playing around now. This is not something I'm going to say this is true or, or be adamant about. But it's not hard to figure in our day that a person could be killed. And with artificial intelligence and computer-generated figures and things like that, it can sure look like he's alive and speaking and giving speeches and all that kind of stuff. And so there's somebody say, how in the world can you have a fatal wound and come back? All manner of explanations. I don't know which one's right, but I do know there's all manner of ways that can happen. In fact... Um, in fact, when John F. Kennedy was killed, some people had seen him as the Antichrist and said that he, and there were rumors. I, I mean, there were rumors going around all through the 60s that he was still on life support somewhere or another. 
and he was going to come back. And, and so anybody ever hear those rumors? Some, some of y'all have heard those rumors. He was on life support somewhere or another, and he's coming back to rule. So I think we can probably lay that one to rest. <laughs> probably lay that one to rest uh, right now. I really think what this is about is mimicking the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's trying to stand in God's place. And so what this passage is about, what we think when we look at the dragon and the beast, it's showing us the awfulness of what can happen on earth when evil is unrestrained. We can look at the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the Stalins and all these guys. And it may be, one person even wrote this. It says that Satan doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. And so it could be that Satan is grooming somebody in every generation to be the enemy. The Hitlers and the Pol Pots and the Stalins. And he's, he's on the lookout. He's watching and waiting, trying to figure out how this is all going to come about as well. What I want to say to you tonight is we need to be aware. There are supernatural powers on this earth that can wreck all kinds of evil. And we need to be dressed for spiritual battle every day. Aware that there are spiritual landmines, there are spiritual temptations, there are spiritual things going on. And, uh, and it's getting more and more in our face, more and more in our face. I can remember still the first time somebody came to me and sat down with me and said, and they were just squalling and said, my wife met somebody on Facebook and she's gone to another state to live with me. And I thought, how in the world? This was way back at the very beginning. I thought, how in the world could something like that happen? And go to the old boyfriend or old girlfriend. This, this was just somebody she just happened to meet. They got to talking. Never met before. Left her family to go meet some guy in Tennessee. How about that? So we need to be aware of spiritual things that are happening. 1 John 2.18, John, same author, same author, even if we don't have the Antichrist, the capital A Antichrist in our time, he said, dear children, this is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. And there are many in the world today and are trying to get you and me to back off of our faith and be quiet about our faith in Jesus. Be aware. Secondly, we need a godly endurance. A godly endurance. Uh, in other words, we need to be able to have a faith and a trust in God that says, I am not going to quit. It's going to be, they're going to be hard days. They're going to be tough times. They're going to be times that it looks really, really hard and really difficult. And you might feel like you're alone and by yourself in this thing. But understand, how do we, what do we need against the great evil of the world? An endurance that stays connected to Jesus. Look, if we will, in verses 9 and 10 again. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And Jesus says some, or John says some pretty tough things here. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone wants to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now, up in verse 7, we've seen that the beast was given the ability to wage war uh, against God's people. And, and remember, he cannot do anything except what God allows him to do. But in these situations, it looks like as the whole world's coming apart, God gives him the ability to actually take people's lives. And he says in verses 9 and 10, he doesn't now watch. He doesn't have, this is what we want to say, he doesn't have the ability to destroy our faith. Doesn't have the ability to take away the faith of God's people. Some people go into captivity and some people will lose their life. And this is what, this is what endurance is about. He says, what does he say? 
if you've been destined to go into captivity, what do you do? You go trust in God. You go trying to honor Christ. There's some things that you can't get out of. He says some are going to lose their life. There are people all over the world that lose their life for Jesus. In our generation, there, there are going to be some that lose a lot. The people are going to lose their life for Jesus in this generation and in this year. What do they do? Well, I mean, you try not to, right? You pray for safety. You pray for comfort. But if that's what's going to happen, what do you do? You try to honor Jesus you endure, you stay strong, you look at Jesus who gave his life for you. I heard about a guy, I read about a guy from Voice of the Martyrs named Ranjit. Uh, Ranjit was an assassin who had gunned down uh, many, many people. And, um, and somehow, someway, some Christians on the front line started giving, uh, gave Ranjit a Bible, started talking to Ranjit, and uh, Ranjit got saved. This political, I mean, this assassin who's killing people, uh, he gets saved, gives his life to Christ, starts leading other people to Christ, and he's at it, the, 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 uh, the group that he left when he got saved uh, were demanding that he come back to them. And uh, they hunted him down and found him in his pastor's home. And his pastor stood at the door and said, um, you know, you can't have him. They, of course, they threatened the pastor's life. The pastor's doing everything he can to protect Ranjit. And Ranjit came uh, out of hiding from one of the back rooms and said, Pastor, I can't let you give your life for me. And so they took him and, uh, and beat him to death. And Ranjit's last words were, please tell my pastor that I died as a believer. Please tell my pastor that I died as a believer. An American missionary was talking to an Iranian Christian and uh, was really, I mean, you know, the, the cultural context that you live in kind of helps you to see the world a certain way. And this um, Iranian missionary said, it's a shame for a Christian to die of natural causes. Just expect, just expect something else uh, to happen. So you have this godly endurance, knowing what? Knowing what? That what God has promised is going to be better. That, he, that, the, that those who endure, and you know I believe in eternal security. I believe God will enable us to endure. Those who endure, if you do go into captivity, you're, you're faithful to witness there. If you get killed, what? You wake up in the presence of Jesus. Some of you know I used to, and still would if I, if I, if I wasn't, dealing with an injury right now, but I used to run some, and um, run a 5K, and I ran 10K, ran a half marathon, ran a marathon, and uh, about a year and a half ago, I ran a half marathon, and um, one of the things that keeps me going when I'm running, and I know, that's kind of insane, I don't, you know, <laughs> but it's just something that seems that gives me something to do, gives me something to do, like I need something else to do, I just go out and run for 13 miles, how about that? It's something that's good for me, it's challenging, it gives me a sense of accomplishment, and so what I tell myself, though, when I'm running, especially like a half marathon, I get around mile 10, and uh, I start hurting. <laughs> I feel like, man, this is, this is hard, you know, how much for the next aid station? You know what I tell myself, though, when I'm running, I get around mile 10? When you finish, you can rest as long as you want to. <laughs> when you finish, you can lay on the couch the rest of the day. You can lay on the couch all day tomorrow. Yeah, well, I mean, you gotta, we got to work, but I, you don't have to run for a week or two. You don't have to ever run again if you don't want to. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It just, it's going to hurt, 
It's going to be sore. It's going to be difficult for a little while, and then you're going to be done. You never have to run. This race will never be run again, and you can relax and know that you did your best. And so that's one of the things as a Christian we can know, that once we run this race, we're done with it, right? And we will be in a far, far better situation by worshiping and walking with Jesus by sight. Third thing I want you to see is it requires a godly faithfulness. But before I get there, look at Revelation 2.26. Because this is what John's talking about. It's what John's talking about to the churches there. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. What's he saying? Endure. Don't give up. Third thing is godly faithfulness. Times of great adversity, we keep trusting God. We look to the cross and resurrection of Christ. We look to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And we trust that he's going to give us everything we need to please him. Satan's kingdom acts from worldly power, but God's people act from courageous faith. Look in Revelation chapter 13, verses 9 and 10 again. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And Jesus really wants us to get this. If anyone goes into captivity, they will go... Anyone's killed with the sword, they'll be killed. Watch this. This calls for what? Patient endurance, what we just saw, staying with it, and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So, how, how do you have faithfulness? You trust in the faithfulness of God. You know that He keeps His promises. You know that He understands what's going on. You know that He's had your heart in His sights from eternity past, and you trust Him, and you act like you trust Him, and you speak and think like He really is going to keep His promises. So many people in horrific times, they say what? Why, God? And that's normal and natural to say. But hopefully, we don't get stuck there. Hopefully, during our horrific times, we don't just say, why, God? But we come to a place where we say, I trust you. I don't see it. I can't figure it out. I don't understand why you did it. Would, I would do this differently if I was you. You ever said that to God? <laughs> if you haven't, you may not have been very honest with God. I would do this differently if I was you. But I trust you in the middle of this. Look at verse 13. And it performed, the beast performed great signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full, full view of the people. And because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. Now, this is the second beast, probably the religious arm of the Antichrist. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in the honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed interestingly enough not long after the book of revelation was written we have evidence archaeological evidence of a legal uh, tradition of executing christians for failure to worship an image representing the emperor of rome so they would be familiar this would not be something um, that they were unfamiliar with so this talking about great suffering he's given uh, power to do miracles he's given power to do signs and, and as i said with with ai computer generated stuff and all that kind of stuff it's not hard for us to imagine how these things uh, could come about when when they talk about worshiping an image though john's people are not thinking about ai computer generated things and all that kind of stuff john's people are thinking about nebuchadnezzar and shadrach meshach and abednego that's where their mind, they're, this is all grounded in the Old Testament. And they're going to remember those three guys who said, we're not going to bow down and our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we're still not going to bow down. That's the faithfulness. God can deliver. 
we're trusting God to do what's right. We hope he delivers. But even if he does it, even if it means our death, we're going to remain faithful to our God. When Hitler came to power, there was a lot of, um, a lot of religious people, a lot of pastors and, and uh, priests and clergymen uh, that went along with him at the beginning. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those who saw it early on uh, uh, that, that this was going really, really sad. This was not, he tries to couch it in Christian terms. There was one pastor, Pastor Martin Niemöller. Um, he was one of a very few, about a few hundred German pastors and leaders who opposed Hitler. And he was put in jail for it. And somebody was visiting, another religious person was visiting and Pastor Niemöller in jail. And they asked him because, because it didn't Somehow or another, they convinced themselves that he wasn't that bad. And so they asked Nemola, they said, what are you doing in jail? And he said, what are you doing not in jail? And so faithfulness may cause us sometimes to walk through some really, really hard things. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What does it say? What do you do with that? Be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. Which leads me to my last point, and that's godly wisdom. Godly wisdom. Godly, now, godly wisdom is going to look foolish from a world's point of view. Godly wisdom says, I'll die before I deny. I'll die before I deny. That's real godly wisdom. So, look at, we'll kind of close up here. Look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 14. Because of the signs it was given to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Jesus promised there's going to be false messiahs. There's going to be false signs and things like that. Go now go down to verses 16 and 18. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast and the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. One of the most debated things in the Bible. What does 666 stand for? Um, to me, the most natural... By the way, this is not the first time we've seen a mark or a seal. In Revelation, uh, Revelation uh, chapter three, verse twelve, uh, Paul says, uh, John writes, "I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is coming down. I will also write on them my new name." Sounds like a mark. Revelation seven three, do not harm the land or the sea until we put a seal on their foreheads. There's going to be more seals and marks for God's people. So these could very easily be symbolic kinds of things. What John is trying to tell us here. What John is trying to tell us here is less about satisfying our end-time curiosity and more about not compromising our faith, not compromising with the enemy, not giving in to uh, 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 what we know God wants us to be. And as I said a while ago, there's all kinds of things that have been um, promoted about what 666 means. Some people don't want to pay 666 at the grocery store. A lot of people don't want 666 as an address or things like that. There's nothing, I wouldn't be superstitious about the number. It's not the number that's important. It's what it stands for. My personal belief uh, is that a, a huge part of this is it's just one notch down from seven. Seven's the number of God. Seven's the number of completion. Three sevens. This is a, an attempt to mimic God. It's an attempt to substitute himself for God. And he can't do it. Why? Because he's one short, right? He cannot measure 
up. And I think that's what it's going to be. But here's the big deal. Here's the big deal. The mark is going to signify that this person is a worshiper and loyal follower of the Antichrist. That's going to be clear. That's going to be out in the open. And it's going to be horrible. Uh, some are going to be uh, killed because they don't receive the mark. You're not going to be able to buy and sell because of the mark. Probably lose your job if you don't receive the mark of the beast. Now, some people are afraid uh, from all kinds of things, from credit cards to vaccines, that maybe they're going to accidentally get the mark of the beast. Let me put your fears aside. You're not going to accidentally get it, okay? The mark signifies somebody who worships the beast, who follows the Antichrist, who is against Jesus Christ. So don't think that somehow or another Satan's going to slip in. You're going to get it from some kind of banking thing or some kind of deal, some kind of, you know, what a government deal is going to do to you. This is not what that is. This is a clear decision to say, I'm going to deny Jesus and follow the Antichrist, or I'm going to be faithful to Jesus and, not, and, and suffer for it and not be able to do some things that may cost me my life. That's why I say it takes godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says I'll die before I deny. So probably this is a parody of, uh, of who God is, and this is a way to really put pressure, and it's going to ferret out. It's going to ferret out who the true believers really are. Let me tell you a story will be done. So what do we do in the face of horrific evil? We look to God to have a godly awareness of what's going on. There are demonic, satanic powers going on around us. We, we trust God for a godly endurance that we don't give up. We understand hard times are coming. We're willing to deal with it. We look to God for a godly faithfulness, trusting that God... Uh, since he's had our heart in his sights from the our eternity past and Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the world and he promises this is just for a short time. We trust him to do that and then we have wisdom to act in ways that we'll be glad we acted in eternity. I was reading about um, mid-20th century. There's a guy named Alexander Solzhenhazen and I know I probably pronounced his name wrong. He was confined, confined to a Soviet camp in the, um, in the mid-20th century um, um, during the time of Soviet communism, atheism, all that kind of stuff, he was wrongfully detained in, the, in uh, Kazakhstan. While he was there, he became ill, and a doctor came by. The doctor was the name of Dr. Nor uh, Boris Cornfield. Um, this is in uh, this, uh, now Solzhenitsyn describes this in 1973 in one of his books, and this is what he says. This is very interesting. He's talking about godly wisdom now. We'll close with this. Following an operation, I'm lying in a surgical ward of a camp hospital. I cannot move. I am hot and feverish, but nonetheless, my thoughts do not dissolve into the delirium. And I'm grateful to Dr. Boris Cornfield, who is sitting beside my cot and talking to me all evening. The light has been turned out so it will not hurt my eyes. There's no one else in the ward. Fervently, he tells me the long story of his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. And it has just happened. I am astonished at the conviction of the new convert, at the ardor of his words. We know each other very slightly, and he was not the one responsible for my treatment, but there was simply no one here with whom he could share his feelings about his newfound faith. I was awakened one morning um, by running about and tramping in the corridor. The orderlies were carrying Dr. Cornfield's body to the operating room. He had been dealt eight blows on the skull with a plasterer's mallet while he slept. He died on the operating table without regaining consciousness. And so it happened that Cornfield's prophetic words 
were his last words on earth and the only person he ever got to witness to was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Because of his words, Solzhenitsyn became a believer. He survived the prison camp, went on to become, some of you may know this, went on to become a gifted writer, one of the most influential believers of his day, speaking out boldly against the Soviet Union and communism, the Russian prison system. And in 1970, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Wisdom, the guy had one person to witness to, he witnessed to him, cost him his life, and this person ends up being one of the most influential believers of his day. That's what wisdom is. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed, then we're looking around. Adversity is better when shared. It really, really is. And we will go through hard times. Um, gratefully, we're not dealing with those kinds of hard times. And uh, we believe that we won't be here during those hard times. But our hard times are hard enough. And tonight we want to be there for each other and be aware that most people around us are carrying far heavier burdens than we ever imagined. From the 16 to 20-year-olds uh, to the parents of young children to the retirees, you never know what the emotional, physical, marital, parental kinds of struggles people are carrying with them be aware be aware don't give up trust god and ask god to give you the wisdom to know the best way to act in your situation father we pray during our hard difficult days we would know how to trust you in the middle of it and we thank you lord that when satan's time is short and he throws the worst he has him and and his antichrist, this person so dominated by evil that it would be horrific to imagine all the things that he sets about to do. I thank you that King Jesus will still be the King of kings and Lord of lords. At least will you play softly for